Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. As regular listeners know, Forgotten Australia is produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, which are currently under threat from bushfires and being protected by brave volunteer firefighters. To make their fight just that little bit easier, please donate at rfs.nsw.gov.au. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this podcast contains the names of people who have died. It's the 11th of April 1939, a Tuesday afternoon, and in the western New South Wales town of Troy, near Dubbo, local police arrest a 61-year-old man named Albert Andrew Moss. Mad Mossy, as he's known on account of his erratic behaviour, is charged with multiple counts of being in possession of stolen goods, a horse, some mutton, a dozen cucumbers and 17 pumpkins. Police also charge him with being an idle and disorderly person with no visible means of support. In other words, a vagrant. Two days later in the Dubbo court, police ask that Moss be held on remand until the following weekend and this request is granted. At the next hearing, on Monday the 17th of April, the police vehemently oppose bail. Given that Moss is but one of many swaggies in the region doing whatever it takes to survive, denying him his freedom indefinitely on relatively minor charges might seem harsh. But there's no way the police are letting him out of their grasp. Detective Sergeant Frankish is representing the police and he tells the magistrate, quote, There are disquieting circumstances in this case. We allege that some of this property belonged to a man who has disappeared and for whom a search is being made. This is polite language for what the police suspect, that Mad Mossy is a monster who has in recent months murdered one man and likely killed several more. 
But without a body or at least some physical evidence, police haven't got a case. So the search is on. The problem is they're working a vast landscape with no end of places to dispose of a body. But Dubbo police are lucky because their ranks include one of the most gifted and dedicated Aboriginal trackers in Australian history, Alec Riley. With an uncanny ability to read the roads, trails, paddocks, bush, waterholes, creeks and rivers, Tracker Riley has for three decades been instrumental in bringing bad guys to justice and saving people lost in the outback. Now he'll need to use these skills to find the evidence that will stop the rampage of that breed of psychopath that we now call a serial killer. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Tracker Riley, Outback Hero. From the earliest days of colonial occupation, white settlers confronted with Australia's forbidding and unfamiliar landscape relied on Aboriginal people as guides and to track escaped convicts. Yet in New South Wales, it wasn't until 1862 that police formally acknowledged the use of Aboriginal men as trackers. And they'd employ them until 1973 when the last official tracker, Norman Walford, retired from service. Over that 110 years, according to Dr. Michael Bennett, historian and author of the forthcoming book Pathfinders, A History of Aboriginal Trackers in New South Wales, some 1,000 Aboriginal trackers were employed by the police. The valuable work they did included chasing down criminals, collecting evidence and rescuing people lost in the outback or retrieving their remains. But while police in New South Wales, particularly in outback regions, depended on black trackers, they weren't paid as much as their white colleagues and weren't regarded as official police employees. Similarly, they didn't always get all or even any of the credit they were due and were often not even accorded a name in newspaper reports of police operations. To an extent, Alec Riley was an exception because he was such an exceptional tracker and because he served for so long and was involved in numerous high-profile cases. Yet, though he'd see his name in print and receive numerous official honours, even Alec Riley would be subject to shameful prejudicial treatment at the end of a long career that had seen him exhibit individual brilliance while also being a faithful police team player. Alexander Riley was born on the 26th of May 1884 at Nimogi, about 150 miles due west of Dubbo. But his people originally came from the Monaro region. Family law has it that Alex's father, John Riley, was the product of a union between an indigenous woman and famed horseman Jack Riley, held by many to have inspired Banjo Patterson's The Man from Snowy River. John Riley moved north, first to Burragarang in western Sydney and then to Condoblin in central New South Wales. He and his wife Mary Callaghan, a Wiradjuri woman, had a son William in 1874 and then Alec came along ten years later. The family lived at a mission station. Alec recalled decades later, quote, I like to hunt with the full bloods. When I was eight years of age, they started to teach me how to track. They first showed me how to recognise the hooves of police horses by the way they were shod. They always knew when a trooper was in the locality. 
It's telling that the first thing Alec learned was how to detect police. In 1890s outback New South Wales, Aboriginal people had few rights and being black meant being wary of white men in uniform. In his teens and early 20s, Alec worked as a station hand breaking in horses. Alec was a Christian who didn't drink. He was fine-featured and handsome, slender and athletic. He was a fine all-round sportsman who'd mentor the region's young footballers, cyclists, athletes and swimmers. Though gentle to the point of timid, he was also a skilled boxer and brave enough that on the 11th of June 1911, he joined the New South Wales Police and was stationed at Dubbo. Gleaned from the few newspaper interviews he gave and my conversations with his granddaughter, Artie Helen Riley, and his great-granddaughter, Bernadette Riley, Alec was a modest man with a strong moral sensibility. In terms of his tracking, he was patient, logical and methodical, gathering, following and testing evidence before coming to conclusions. Out of professional interest and for personal pleasure, he read the Sherlock Holmes stories of Arthur Conan Doyle and in particular thought the fictional detectives trailing in The Boscombe Valley Mystery and The Priory School were both in the best traditions of real-life black tracking. While Alec was a logical man, he also admitted a fear of corpses, which in his line of work he'd often be called on to confront. One of Alec's early tracking successes involved chasing down a man who'd escaped from the Dubbo lockup. On the fugitive's trail, Tracker Riley reported that his quarry had crossed the river below Dubbo six or seven times. At this stage, he was still earning his reputation and such a specific claim was doubted by his white police colleagues. But when the escapee was arrested at Narrow Mine, the man confirmed that yes, he'd made those river crossings in a bid to throw off his pursuers. That Alec could stay on such a trail was as much about him having extraordinary perceptive ability as it was about him having extraordinary patience. We're lucky enough to have a detailed description of his tracking method thanks to a Sydney Daily Telegraph reporter who watched him work. Quote, he was moving in ever-widening circles around the white ashes of an old campfire, treading lightly, never raising his head, giving the extraordinary impression that he was looking with his ears, nose and tight-lipped mouth as well as his eyes. He held his hands slightly in front of his hips, palms facing the ground, fingers extended and separated, like a fortune teller using the earth for a crystal. While this journalist felt he was watching something akin to magic, Tracker Riley set him straight with an explanation that spoke to his modesty while illustrating how intrinsic his talents were. The reporter asked what Alec looked for. Quote, What do I look for? I look for the track, you know, the trail. What else would I look for? I look for the marks a man leaves when he walks. I watch to see where he turns, how he walks, how long since he was there. Wherever a man goes, he leaves marks. He kicks stones, breaks sticks and twigs, steps in soft earth or sand. Every man walks his own different way. Every man's shoes and boots are different. What Tracker Riley was describing was the bedrock of forensic policing. Every contact leaves a trace. 
But the Daily Telegraph reporter wasn't quite getting it, especially the bit about keeping after a man who had gone into a river. He asked, quote, How do you follow him then? Noting how patiently Tracker Riley spoke, the reporter quoted him as answering, You just look. You just keep on looking. You go one way along the bank for a while. Then, if you find no trace of him leaving the river that way, you go back and walk along the banks the other way. You just look until you find the marks where he comes out of the river. He must come out of the river unless he drowns. He must leave a trail when he comes out. Some fugitives, Alex said, were inventive in trying to throw him off. Some tried to walk backwards, though this was exhausting and few could do it for more than 50 yards. Quote, You try it yourself. You stumble and you can't see where you're going and you think you look stupid. Black people do it better than white. They're more patient. Tracker Riley couldn't help but admire one fugitive whose tracks ended at a post and rail fence. Quote, He walked more heavily on his right foot than his left and twisted his heel in a funny way each step. But there was no mark to show where he got over the fence. So I knew he stayed on the fence. I walked one, two miles west beside the fence. No sign that he got down. I walked back again and walked more than a mile east before I found his trail on the other side of the fence. He had crawled or blondined along the top of the fence for more than a mile. And if you tried to get away in a sulky or motor car, Tracker Riley could tell which way you were going, and he gave the reporter a lesson. Quote, Don't look at the wheel marks. Look at the marks on the stones and twigs which the wheels passed over and displaced. The wheels always throw them behind the car. A man, of course, kicks the stones and twigs ahead of him in the direction he's going. For Dubbo police to lose a tracker of such talents must have come as a blow. But that's what happened when Alec Riley resigned from the service on the 31st of August 1914. Why he quit isn't known. Given the timing, the Great War had begun just weeks earlier, I thought perhaps he'd enlisted to fight. But there's no record of him joining the 1st Australian Imperial Force, nor are there family stories of him serving. Whatever his reason, Alec Riley changed his mind towards the end of the war and returned to the New South Wales Police Force on New Year's Day 1918. For the next three decades, he'd serve faithfully, the cases he worked often making the regional and city newspapers. The first of these came on Christmas Eve in 1918 when a four-year-old girl named Elsie Herriot wandered away from her grandfather's property near Stewart Town outside Dubbo. Tracker Riley was called in and led the search party. He followed her trail for about two miles towards Mumble, where he found her at a dam, already safe after having been discovered by a Mr J Dutfield of Stockyard Creek. While Alec's tracking skills were superlative, his day-to-day -day duties involved traditional policing in and around Dubbo, which must have been a constant challenge in terms of the racism he faced. A few examples from this early part of his career. In March 1919, he was on the scene in Dubbo when a dog savaged a child and then testified in court when the victim's mother sued the dog's owner for £250 in damages. 
In July the following year, during floods, he and colleague Sergeant Tubman had to row a boat a long way and against a strong current to rescue two men who'd failed to heed evacuation orders and become marooned at a property. And a few months after that, Tracker Riley and Sergeant Tubman brought in a 16-year-old for stealing three bullocks valued at £40. But it was Alex tracking feats that made for the best newspaper copy. In October 1921, while looking for a lost woman named Mrs Stein near Eumengery, he demonstrated prowess that was recounted in an article published all over New South Wales under the headline, Blackfellows Fine Tracking. Finding footprints that he knew didn't belong to Mrs Stein but thought had been made by a teenage boy, yet wanting to be sure he wasn't missing some vital clue, Alec followed them. Through scrub, across clear ground, up and down ridges, for a distance of eight miles until he reached a house. A woman came out and Alec asked to see her oldest boy. When the lad appeared, he questioned him and was told he'd been out looking for goats and that he'd taken the exact path that Alec had followed. As for Mrs Stein, she was found elsewhere, alive though mentally unbalanced, her derangement having caused her to become lost. The following month saw a more tragic and sensational case. On the morning of the 11th of November 1921, the third Remembrance Day, a man named James White, who lived near Yeovil, about 45 miles south of Dubbo, heard moans coming from Buckenbar Creek. Investigating, he found a 61-year-old man named Alexander Matheson rolled up in a rug, a towel tied around his face, still alive, but having suffered dreadful head injuries that would soon prove fatal. When found, Alexander Matheson had only been in a shirt and trousers. From the evidence, his blood-spattered tent and a split surveyor's peg covered in blood and hair, it seemed obvious that he'd been surprised, bashed, dragged, hidden and left to die. A constable learned that at 6am a man had driven a horse and sulky belonging to the victim from the camp. That afternoon, Tracker Riley and Constable Siner mounted their horses and began searching the area's back roads, looking for tracks, interviewing people and trying to get a fix on the man driving the sulky. They learned he was following the new railway line heading towards Dubbo. Tracker Riley and Constable Siner were joined by Constables Tubman and Oldfield and they went to a railway camp where they searched the belongings of a worker family named Earsman and found a blood-spattered shirt along with a suit, photos and papers belonging to Alexander Matheson. They learned that the son, George, and his father, James, were driving a sulky like Alexander Matheson's and Tracker Riley followed the trail towards Dubbo, catching up with the men four miles shy of the town. They questioned them and arrested George Earsman for the assault on Alexander Matheson, with that charge upgraded to murder after he died. The Dubbo Liberal and Macquarie Advocate newspaper reported on the 15th of November 1921, quote, Great credit is due to Constables Oldfield and Siner and Tracker Riley. They had been in the saddle for about 16 hours, following up every track and collecting information. Nothing was left undone to follow up Earsman, and by the time they arrested him, they were tired men. Sergeant Tubman had about 14 hours in the saddle, and he, too, was glad when the mission was finished. 
21-year-old George Earsman claimed he owned the horse and sulky, having bought them three weeks earlier in Parks. George claimed he'd only left Parks the past Tuesday, had stopped at his aunt's place at Tommingley on Wednesday and camped at Obley alongside the school on Thursday and left there this very morning at 7 o'clock. He claimed he'd never met Alexander Matheson and had never been to Yeovil. George Earsman was taken to Dubbo Lockup. A watch and chain found on him, which he claimed to have bought in Sydney, had been sold to Alexander Matheson just three weeks earlier in Dubbo, as recorded in the jeweller's receipt book. As it turned out, Alexander Matheson had had his own run-in with Dubbo police not long after that, with police sergeants having the opportunity to see this watch, to see his horse and sulky, and other items, all of which had been found in George Earsman's possession. Numerous other witnesses would also come forward to testify to having seen Alexander Matheson's distinctive horse and sulky, the one whose tracks Alec had just followed, and to having seen George Earsman with Matheson in his camp the night before he was found bashed and dying. When the case came to trial, George Earsman surprised everyone, including his own defence counsel, by suddenly declaring that while he was innocent, he did know who'd killed Alexander Matheson. He said he'd been given the belongings by a man named Ferguson, who'd also conveniently admitted to having killed the man. It took the jury just 20 minutes to find George Earsman guilty. He was sentenced to death, but this was commuted to life imprisonment. Tracker Riley's work had helped put a young killer behind bars, but he wasn't yet done with the Earsman family and would encounter George's father, James, some 15 years later. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Going to a bloody murder scene like the one at the Yeovil camp had to be troubling for any policeman. But with his vivid ability to see what had happened from the physical evidence, who'd walked or run where, how they'd been hit or fallen and so on, it was likely even more disturbing for Alec. He'd later say that he didn't like these violent criminal cases. He much preferred searching for people lost in the bush. But these victimless cases, as often as not, also had unhappy endings that put Alec face to face with the dead. On the 2nd of January 1922, a young man named Norman Butt got into trouble in the Macquarie River and, after a brave local bloke's rescue effort failed, was swept away by the fast current. For the next three days and nights, Tracker Riley and Constable Bevan of Narrow Mine Police searched until they found the dead man. Such work was grim, but it offered closure to grieving loved ones. The Dubbo Dispatch and Wellington Independent newspaper commented, quote, Both are to be commended for the spirit of self-sacrifice which they showed in following the instincts of humanity. 
But Alec's instincts of humanity, along with his tracking skills, would be tested to their limits by his next big case, which he would call the most difficult of his career. This was the manhunt for Roy Governor, the Aboriginal fugitive who has a strong claim for the title Last of the Bushrangers. According to a Bathurst jail entrance book page found at ancestry.com.au, Roy Governor was born on the 5th of March 1895, the youngest child of Thomas and Amy Governor. Roy had nine older siblings, and two of them, his brothers Jimmy and Joe, became infamous on the 20th of July 1900. Incensed by insults and abuse directed at his white wife, Jimmy Governor, along with fellow Indigenous worker Jackie Underwood, went on a murderous rampage at the Morby family's property at Breelong, 10 miles west of Gilgandra. They killed Mrs Morby, three of her children and a female boarder before going on the run with Jimmy's brother Joe. Jackie gave himself up after a few days, but Jimmy and Joe remained at large for three months, hunted by 100 police and many more armed locals. During their time as fugitives, the Governor brothers committed further robberies and assaults and murdered another four people. Jimmy was shot, wounded and captured near Wingham on the 27th of October 1900, while Joe was shot dead four days later at Singleton. Jackie Underwood was hanged on the 14th of January 1901 at Dubbo Jail, and Jimmy Governor went to the noose four days later at Darlinghurst Jail. Seventy years later, Jimmy Governor's life and death were the basis for Thomas Keneally's novel The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, later made into a powerful film of the same name. But back in the early 1920s, people of Western New South Wales didn't need fictionalised versions because their memories of the murders, the manhunt and the executions were still raw. So how was Roy Governor affected by his brothers going on a killing spree and then themselves being killed? It's not possible to say with certainty. He was just five years old at the time of their crimes and likely knew little of them then. However, I think it's reasonable to assume that he grew up in the shadow of Jimmy and Joe and was vilified by some people and revered by others on account of his surname. By early 1918, Roy, who'd worked as a labourer and also as a police tracker, was on the wrong side of the law. That February, he was convicted on charges of theft, larceny, burglary and assault and sentenced to five years in Bathurst Jail. Bathurst Jail was a brutal place for everyone incarcerated there, but Aboriginal prisoners copped the worst of the mistreatment. Roy Governor survived, embittered, and was released in February 1923. He'd later say he'd intended to go to Moree, but had missed the train and found himself stuck in Wellington, where he couldn't get work and was shunned for the colour of his skin. So Roy went bush, slept rough and took to petty thefts in the Manduran and Cobra districts in March and April of 1923. As confirmed in numerous newspaper accounts, he took only what he needed. A saddle and a sheep here, some cake and vegetables there. On one occasion, he even paid for what he pinched, leaving an explanatory note that he signed, quote, I have taken a loaf of bread, but I have left five shillings to pay for it. Roy Governor. 
That he signed his name suggested a man who wanted recognition, both in his own right and as a sibling to his infamous brothers. But there was another incident that cast him in a darker light, in which he allegedly attacked a young woman named Florence Ossington, throwing her to the ground before running off when her dog went for him. It should be noted that while Roy Governor owned his crimes, he would deny having assaulted Mrs Ossington. Among the white population, Roy Governor being on the loose stirred up bad memories of the Breelong Massacre and everything that had come afterwards. These fears attached themselves to Roy, even though his thefts of food had been non-violent and, in a very real way, echoed the petty crimes arising from starvation and need that had seen so many convicts sent to Australia. Emblematic of the overreaction to Roy's crimes, the Mudgy Guardian's headline on the 14th of May 1923 read, Supposed Desperado at Large. Boomley and Menduran districts terrorised. Jimmy and Joe Governor's brother Roy said to be implicated. Breelong tragedies recalled. But rather than laying low or moving on, Roy embraced his growing infamy. At one place, he left a rough sketch of the gallows with a hand pointing towards the noose and the inscription, quote, This is where it may lead to. What also didn't bode well was that he'd stolen a rifle. Roy's bravado made him seem a bit like an Aboriginal Robin Hood, and this was bolstered by the encounter he had with a railway worker named Davidson. The fettler was working his length of line when he came across Roy, sitting with his swag at the edge of a cutting. Roy put his hands to his rifle, but seeing Davidson was a workman, he eased off, said hello, and asked if he might have a smoke. The men smoked and chatted. Roy told Davidson he didn't want to hurt anyone. All he wanted was food, and if he got that, he'd be happy. Davidson countered by saying the harness and rifle that Roy had stolen belonged to ordinary men who needed them for their work. Seeing the truth in this, Roy gave them to Davidson to return to their owners. Speaking of his future, the fugitive said he'd never be taken back to Bathurst Jail, where he'd been very badly treated, though if he thought he would be sent to Goulburn Jail, he'd consider giving himself up. Cockley, Roy said he couldn't be tracked and that he was so good at evasion that even he wouldn't have been able to track himself. But should there be a confrontation with the coppers, he vowed, quote, I will look along the barrel if the police try to arrest me. By mid-May, police reinforcements and extra ammunition were brought in from Bathurst, Mudgee, Gulgong, Rydal and other western New South Wales stations. The troopers, all experienced bushmen, were armed with 45 calibre Adams revolvers and 32 calibre Winchester rifles. Alec Riley was put on the case and Roy Governor soon had him in his sights. On the 16th of May, the fugitive stole a basket from a store. It was found the following day with a note written with a charcoal pencil. Quote, The police want to get rubber on their boots, also on their horse's feet. The black tracker is not much good. He continued, I'll shoot the tracker as sure as my name is Governor. I saw him today but gave him a chance, but no more. He can't track to earn tucker. If he could track, I'd shoot myself. 
Excuse my charcoal pencil, off to Coonabarra brand border. Roy Governor. The Coonabarra brand comment was believed to be a ruse. But who knew with such a cocky fugitive? Alec was joined by two other black trackers, Monty Tickle from Orange and Edward Bennett of Barradine. These men had their work cut out for them. Roy, who knew all the evasive tricks, walking in circles, walking backwards, climbing along fences, crossing and recrossing rivers, made things harder still by wrapping his feet in wallaby skins. The town at the centre of the search was Menduran. Menduran had six or seven stores, a school, billiard hall, several churches and two hotels. It also had a police station, but the station didn't have a phone. So four or five times a day, a constable had to walk a quarter of a mile to the post office to collect any telegrams that had arrived. Here's how the Sun newspaper described this place on the 24th of May, 1923. Quote, Menduran is the place to cultivate a decent thirst. All day, the dry southwest wind blows over the dust of miles of parched country. One old gentleman who has to lift a foot of bushy beard to fix his collar stud declares that it rained here once, but few believe him. It would be a good place to spend a holiday if you could not go anywhere else. Around this dusty town was a search area comprising some 50,000 acres. While some of it was farmland, most of it was scrub so thick you couldn't see another man five yards away. Police horses couldn't be taken into such territory, and even if they were able to handle the terrain, Roy Governor would be able to hear their approach and melt away. Each day, the constables and trackers would split up into groups and walk 20 or so miles, penetrating as much as seven miles into the bush. But given Roy could simply drop to the ground and likely be passed by, this was close to mission impossible. As one officer would tell the Sun newspaper, quote, We are literally beating about the bush with as much chance of catching Roy Governor as we would have in finding a needle in a haystack. Against these odds, on Thursday the 17th of May, Alec and one of the other trackers followed Roy's trail for a couple of miles along the railway line towards Coonabarabran. Hope faded when the tracks vanished. Then the trackers found them again, followed the marks left by the wallaby fur as they doubled back into the scrub, only for the footprints to disappear again. With such slow progress, newspaper writers expended a goodly number of column inches speculating as to whether Roy's actions meant he was a harmless thief or cut from the same cloth as his brother's. The Mudgy Guardian on the 14th of May 1923 related his petty crimes and their non-violent nature before offering this commentary. Quote, This does not picture him as a forbidding character but his attack on Mrs. Ossington, the primitive savage in him, his inherent hostility to the usurper and the bloodlust of the brood whose name he bears all combine to establish a reign of fear and to instill caution. One is thus forced to the belief that he is a desperate man, though in fact he may be only playing, which it is time only will tell. Newspaper reporters didn't seek out Indigenous people to record their views on Roy Governor. But among white people, 
many of whom had Irish convict heritage and a strong anti-authoritarian streak, there was palpable admiration for the bold bushranger. The Mudgee Guardian on the 21st of May reported, quote, With the blackfellow's native cunning and something of a white man's intelligence, Roy Governor, humorist, desperado and strategist, still continues to survive the combing efforts of the police. The article continued, quote, He can see and yet not be seen. This is the perplexing part of it. He has been playing a game of hide-and-seek with the police and apparently enjoying it. He makes occasional visits to different places and the police always know where he was, but he never lets them know where he is. That is the maddening thing about it. That and the fact that he appears to be enjoying the joke. While Roy Governor felt like a folk hero in the making, the fact that he was again carrying a rifle and had vowed to use it loomed large over the manhunt. This led to shameful speculation about how much Alec Riley, Monty Tickle and Edward Bennett were to be trusted. Here's what the Mudgy Guardian had to say about it on the 21st of May. Quote, whether his black brothers cannot or will not lead his pursuers to Governor's Lair is a question which many people cannot answer satisfactorily for themselves, and, if truth was known, maybe the same question is troubling the minds of the people. There are such things as fellow feelings and kindred dust. Are they considerations that have an influence on the minds of the trackers? To quote from Governor's note, he said in plain language that he would shoot the tracker if he approached too close again. Was this a simple declaration of his intentions, or was it a threat used to deter the black brother from leading the searchers to where he is? It might be either. It matters little which, for the effect is the same. Who, valuing his life, would lead, without reluctance, even an army of armed policemen into regions where, behind every standing object, lurked the spectre of death, and every step brought him closer to an end, the possibilities of which nobody but a maniac could contemplate with equanimity. It is not reasonable to assume anything else. No doubt Alec and his fellow trackers were worried about being shot, but that would also have been true of the white police, though their devotion to duty wasn't under suspicion. With such a vast search area, the best chance to catch Roy Governor was running him to ground after he broke cover. On the night of Tuesday the 22nd of May, as the O'Brien family slept in their house, Roy broke in and stole flour, tea and sugar, going about his business, as the Mudgy Guardian reported, quote, with such deftness and skill that the family was unaware anybody had been there until morning. When they discovered the theft, they summoned the police, and Alec inspected the ground around the house. There was nothing except for a single bare footprint. Ever patient and methodical, Alec kept looking. Later that afternoon, about half a mile from the house, he found the familiar padded footprints. He followed them and saw where Roy had set down a 10-pound bag of flour as he climbed a fence. The team, police and trackers, followed the trail through the scrub to the railway line but were thwarted when darkness fell. Returning the next day, they weren't able to pick up the trail. 
The next day, Friday, in another location, tracker Monty Tickle found Roy's tracks going backwards through a gate, an attempt to disguise the direction of his movements. Then Monty lost them. A few miles out of Menduran, the trackers followed Roy's prints from a vacant house to a well, only for his marks to again melt away across the twig-strewn ground. On Thursday night, the 30th of May, Roy was seen at the window of a house seven miles away from Menduran. Alec arrived the next morning and found padded tracks all around the house and storeroom and by 8am had worked out which way Roy had gone, even though the fugitive had walked in big circles to confuse his pursuers. The three trackers followed the trail for five miles through scrub, two looking for tracks, the other watching the bush ahead for movement, the white police close behind. After an hour and a half, Alec, Monty Tickle and Edward Bennett determined they were just minutes behind Roy. Then the tracks vanished. The men spread out, Sergeant O'Farrell of Bathurst and Trooper Siner of Dubbo on the right with Monty, while Alec and Edward took the left. Edward picked up the trail again and he and Alec saw Roy 250 yards ahead on lower ground, carrying a rifle, water bag and billy can, unaware of their presence. Edward signalled for everyone to take cover, but before they could, Roy Governor saw the white police and Monty. The fugitive calmly put down his water bag and billy, raised his rifle and stepped behind a tree. Trooper Siner shouted, Surrender, Governor! Roy yelled back, Come and have a go! Trooper Siner demanded surrender twice more. Roy didn't give up, but he didn't fire either. Hoping to make an arrest without anyone getting hurt, Alec, Monty, Edward, Sergeant O'Farrell and Trooper Siner crawled forwards over harsh ground. Closing in on the spot, they found Roy had somehow melted away and escaped via a deep creek that had been concealed from their view. Inspecting the evidence, Alec and the other trackers saw what Roy had done. He'd crawled backwards from the tree and into a shadowy gully. Then he'd gone into the creek before bolting, jumping fallen logs. They followed his tracks along the creek line and then back into the scrub before night fell again. Roy had gotten away. Sydney's The Sun newspaper would be openly admiring with its headline reading, quote, Police outwitted, Roy Governor cornered, come and have a go, clever getaway. That midnight, six miles from the creek, on the outskirts of Menduran, a Mrs Cheatham heard a noise outside and said, Who's there? Roy replied, The bushranger. She screamed and he ran off, with constables who'd been staking out a nearby cottage, firing three shots at him. About five hours later, Roy was surprised at a remote farm and had to run away again. These escapes got him really admiring newspaper coverage from the Daily Telegraph, the 5th of June. Quote, Roy Governor is now familiarly known in the Menduran district as the Flying Bushman, a title he has justly earned by the wonderful velocity with which he covers long distances through the scrub. One night he will appear four miles west of the town and the next he may be seen six miles to the east or north. His energy is as amazing as his caution. For the police, it must be confessed, are completely baffled by his methods and superior bushmanship. 
The Wyalong Advocate and Mining, Agricultural and Pastoral Gazette had been even more admiring on the 25th of May, with an article headlined, Comic Opera Bushranger. Quote, One cannot help a smile when he reads of the dance our latest bushranger is leading a whole battalion of police in the Dubbo district. Here is one Aboriginal on foot with everyone against him, absolutely outwitting a whole army of civilians and police. In these days of aeroplanes, wireless and a veritable network of railways and telephones, one would think that his capture would be only a matter of hours. On the evening of the 5th of June 1923, Roy was spotted by a man named Claude Mears on his property, seven miles from Menduran. The fugitive didn't see Mr Mears, who retreated and alerted police, though everyone was out on watch that night and couldn't respond until the next morning. That's when a civilian named Mr Jay Green used his car to drive tracker Edward Bennett, Sergeant Young of Menduran and Sergeant Payne of Dunidoo to Claude Mears' property. But the fugitive was gone. Mr Mears suggested there was a nearby hut in which he might have sought refuge. As they approached, Roy came out of his hut, rifle in hand. Sergeant Young called for him to surrender. Roy raised his rifle, and this time, he did fire. There was a flurry of gunshots, with Sergeant Young shot through the right elbow, the bullet breaking bones before exiting his arm and then entering his side and lodging in his hip. Mr Green took the badly bleeding Sergeant Young back to his car and drove him to Menduran. As the shootout continued, a bullet whizzed by Tracker Bennett's ear. After about 10 minutes, Roy launched a frontal attack on the police, only to be shot and fall to the ground. Shouting he'd been hit, he said he surrendered, and in agony, called out to God. Roy had been shot beneath the left shoulder, with the bullet piercing both of his lungs. He was lucky to survive. So was Sergeant Young. Although Roy Governor was charged with the attempted murder of a policeman, along with a series of other serious and petty offences, he was still thought of with affection and as a bit of a rogue. On the 7th of June, the Sun newspaper summed up this sentiment in the crude terms of the time. Quote, A surprising amount of sympathy is expressed for Governor locally. The views expressed are that he only wanted a bit of tucker, that he was a harmless savage, and that it was a shame to have shot him. It is reported one person even shed tears for the unfortunate fugitive. Ten days later, The Sun reported, quote, A surprising amount of local sympathy exists for Governor, and his recovery is hailed with undisguised feelings of friendliness throughout the district. The Aboriginal trackers who'd been instrumental to the month-long manhunt were also lauded. While Edward Bennett had been on the spot, Alec Riley and Monty Tickle shared the honours when they stood together for a photograph that would run in the Sun newspaper beneath the headline, The Men Who Tracked Governor. Was Alec Riley disappointed he hadn't been there when Roy Governor shot it out with police? We don't know. What we do know is that he called this his most difficult case. It seems likely he meant this from a practical point of view because it was tough tracking a man who'd been a tracker himself. 
but it's equally likely he meant it was difficult because, as an Aboriginal man, he had endured the same racism, disadvantage and lack of control over his own affairs that had shaped Roy Governor. Roy had been the target of a huge manhunt for stealing food, which is exactly what had been stolen from his people just a century earlier when white settlers occupied lands on which Aboriginal people had lived for tens of thousands of years. And Roy Governor made this very argument when he appeared in Dubbo Court on the 16th of October 1923. From the Daily Telegraph, quote, The accused asked the jury to imagine that in a country once owned by his own people, he was chased by the police as though they were a pack of wolves. They came after him as if they were out shooting wild animals, threatening to kill him. Such was the treatment served out to a poor Aboriginal in a civilised country. Roy Governor was tried for maliciously shooting Sergeant Young with intent to murder, shooting Sergeant Young with intent to do grievous bodily harm, and shooting Sergeant Young to evade lawful apprehension. Roy was found not guilty of the attempted murder, but guilty on the other two charges. The following day, he pleaded guilty to seven charges of breaking, entering and stealing, but he pleaded not guilty to the charge of assaulting Mrs. Ossington, and this was dropped by the Crown. For his crimes, Roy Governor, self-styled bushranger, was sentenced to 12 years to be served in brutal Bathurst jail. While Alec Riley would remember Roy Governor as his most difficult job, the tracker's most famous criminal case, the search for evidence against serial killer Mad Mossy, lay in his future as did the haunting case of a lost child. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This episode was made possible with the very kind help of Alec Riley's granddaughter, Artie Helen Riley, and his great-granddaughter, Bernadette Riley. Part two of this episode will be released next week. And for more information about this and other Forgotten Australia stories, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.